Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, William Hunter was a radical advocate for American democracy. Born in New Brunswick, New Jersey, he was the founder of the second newspaper west of the Alleghenies, and he was the first newspaper editor to protest the Alien and Sedition Acts. Arguably a Jacksonian Democrat, even before Andrew Jackson ran for his first try at the presidency, Hunter served the Jackson administration as a civil servant, as he also did seven successive administrations. Yet that brief biography obscures some very interesting origins. For William Hunter was born in New Brunswick, yes, but as the son of John Hunter of the 26th Regiment of the Line. For the first 10 years of his life, William followed his father as his peacetime service in British America became combat service in the rebellious territory of the new United States. Departing for Britain at age 10 in 1778, when his sick father was detached for recruiting duties, William returned to the United States 15 years later, his father dead and buried, his mother and sister left behind on the other side of the Atlantic. He was now a committed Republican, arriving in Philadelphia in the midst of the yellow fever epidemic of 1793. William Hunter would never again travel back across the ocean or see his mother and sister again. Gene Procknow describes the ups and downs and twists and turns of William Hunter's eventful life in his new book, William Hunter Finding Free Speech, a British soldier's son who became an early American. Formerly a management consultant with a global consulting firm, Gene Procknow has now become a careful historian of early American history. William Hunter is his first book. Gene Proc, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. I really enjoy being here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners today. The question that I probably should say for the last, but I just can't, I have to ask it now. How did you come across William Hunter's diary? And could you describe it? Because you you have lovely descriptions of like how it's how it's put together, mm-hmm. what's there, what's missing. So how did that happen? In, in a word, Al, serendipity. It was just pure chance. I went to a, a dinner party. And when you go to a dinner party, they sit you next to someone you don't know. So you introduce yourself, and and this woman asked me, what do you do? And I said, I'm an aspiring historian. And she said, we have a a document in our family archives that's a family basement, actually, that appears to be from the Revolutionary War. We don't know much about it. Would you like to look at it? So I just jumped at that chance. And what it turned out to be was a 37-page journal written by a child of a British soldier during the American Revolution. The problems with it was the first part of the diary was missing, so there was no name. So I didn't know who it was. I didn't know it was William Hunter. And then some parts of the diary were missing. Some parts were cut out. And then the diary abruptly ends 25 years into his life. I had to go back and piece that through and figure out who he was. So you had like, at the beginning, you had the best possible historical detective work to do. Yeah, and it was like a detective work. It was fun. I worked with Don Hagis, who's an expert on the British Army. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, yes, and a very good editor of the Journal of the American Revolution. But he he was he helped me narrow down the list of possibilities, and we went through a dozen or more possibilities of who this person could be. But we ended up finding a, a printer in Philadelphia that matched William Hunter, that matched 
the description of someone coming to Philadelphia. And then I was able to take that name and complete the genealogy between William Hunter and the descendants today. There's about 50 descendants out there today of William Hunter, but none of them had the name William Hunter. So I could create the genealogy there. And then I found a document written by William Hunter with his name on it. So I'm clear that the handwriting is the same handwriting. And the facts in the diary comport to other primary sources around the newspapers that he owned, the businesses he owned. And so I am dead certain that the author of the diary is William Hunter. So and then I guess you could go forward to find out who his father was. Yes. Because he never mentions his father by name. No, he doesn't really. And it's he doesn't mention him by name because he's his father. (laughs) What do you call your father? Mention his name. He didn't mention his father's name. Yeah. Yeah. Though he does mention his mother's name. That's what's interesting. His Uh mother's name is Margaret. So that's interesting. And I'll get to that later on here. But uh, the document is in beautiful 18th century handwriting. You Mm. can write it, read it today. The family has made a few notations and pencil around it. It's, they tried to add some things or subtract some things to it, but it's, I've done a job of editing the diary and uh, it's the facts in it are pretty much uh, 100% accurate with a few kind of small issues you might expect a young boy to have. The young boy puffed up a bit and said his father was in the Grenadier Company. He wasn't. He was in a regular company. He also said that John Andre served as a lieutenant in his father's company. He served in another company adjacent to his father. So those kind of minor kind of inaccuracies, but it's amazing how accurate it really is. So you're calling it a diary, but he wasn't keeping it when he was five no. or six or seven. Or so he's no. at some point in his life, he wrote this trying to distill what he remembered about his early life. Yeah, you're right. It really is a journal. I know it's written after 1830 because it references King Louis. I think it's the 18th. He was exiled to England and lived in Holyrood Castle. And for some reason, William Hunter visited Edinburgh. And so I think he saw, I don't know, he never went inside, I'm sure, but saw the castle. So that kind of sparked something in his mind. So he mentions him. So I know it was written after 1830 and William Hunter died in 1854. It's somewhere written in that time frame. What I believe was that is that for many years of his life as an American, he tried to obscure his past. And there are some instances that he was persecuted for being a British son of a British soldier because that wasn't too cool in revolutionary America. If you think about that, it's kind of- He wasn't the only one. Yeah, he wasn't the only one. Yeah, he wasn't a loyalist. And so that would even been worse. But I don't think he he didn't advertise that. I think he wanted his family to know his early history. And that's Mm -hmm. why I think he wrote this thing down. And I think he also had some pride that he was able to make it here and make the transition. And I think he was very proud of that. He wanted his family to know that. So that's why he wrote down. And if you- Once he got the United States in 1793, as you mentioned, after the yellow fever epidemic, then you can go into the historical record in the United States and learn about him. But before that, it's really the diary is the major way to learn about him. And in what year does the diary stop? It's 1793 when he comes to the United States. So let's go back to his uh, 1768. He's born in New Brunswick. Americans are going to be surprised to realize that there were British soldiers in New Brunswick. It's one of the places where British soldiers were stationed. Can you tell something about basically a British regiment, even to this day, is a much more cohesive 
unit than an American organization of similar type in the army. Could you describe the, his two families then? He's born into this yes. family and is also a regimental family and both nurture him yeah. at that age. Yes, absolutely. And you're right about the two families, because back then in the 18th century, when a, a unit went on to overseas deployment, many of them brought their families with them. So it was a family within a family. William's father, John Hunter, he married in Ireland, a woman by uh, Margaret Nance was her name. They had one child probably before they left, though that's still a bit murky. They embarked from Cork, the the Cobb, Cobb Cove dock. I went and visited that. That was fun, seeing where he actually left. And they never never went back to Ireland, but he came over. And a year after coming over here, they, William was born. And William had a tough early family life because his older brother passed away. He had a younger brother, was born a year or so after him. That boy passed away. The sister did. The sister did survive the war, but William lost track of her pretty quickly, and so he never really had a chance to have good sibling relationships. It was very tough. He got into at New Brunswick. You mentioned uh, there was a barracks built during the French and Indian War there. That's where they lived in New Brunswick. It, we think about the Boston Massacre and all of the conflict between the British Army and the local residents in Boston and New York, the Battle of Golden Hill in New York, where they had, uh, before the revolution, they had a, a real fight between the British and the local citizens. It wasn't that case. It was a very peaceful, very harmonious relationship between the British soldiers and the local New Brunswick population. In fact, they had parties and they would invite each other over to the parties. This deployment, while William was in New Brunswick, only two soldiers passed. That is like an unbelievably low death rate for soldiers back at that time, even in peace time. They had 150 children born and 50 marriages. Wow. So this, when I say it was peaceful, it was definitely peaceful. <laughs> it it indicates too that they were so much of 18th century death is related to malnutrition. Yes. So they, they were well fed and provisioned and obviously happy. It was a good garrison duty. It yes, it was a good garrison. It was very peaceful. They actually took them from New Brunswick and transferred the 26th Regiment to New York for a while because they thought maybe they could have better relations in New York. And then they transferred them to Montreal. And Montreal had the same kind of relationships. So the Montreal citizens really liked the, the 26th Regiment of Foot for two reasons. One is that their surgeon was an expert in inoculating for smallpox. And so he inoculated a lot of the local citizens, too, for smallpox. The British Army was really good at that. We always know about the smallpox in the American Army. The British Army had the same conditions, but they didn't. They were very good at inoculation and making that work. So they didn't have the same problems that the Americans did in terms of disease in their ranks. What was the 26th Regiment like? Where, who, how was it set up? How was it different than other regiments? Or was it different than other regiments? It's uh, first off, it's a, it was different that it was a, its heritage was Scottish. So it was loyal Scottish people. It, at one time, it, almost 100% of the soldiers were Scottish. So I, I actually, I don't know whether Hunter was born in Scotland or Ireland. There was obviously a lot of Scots that moved to Ireland too, uh, but it was a Scottish heritage. They're very proud of that heritage. One of the, uh, the commanders after the revolution actually 
bragged that he didn't have one Englishman in the service. So they were very proud of that heritage. They called themselves the, after a leader, Scottish leader, Cameron. And that colored the rest. And they were all Protestants. They were all Protestants. No Catholics were allowed in this regiment at this time. Later in the revolution, that changed when they needed soldiers. But they were all Protestants. So they actually fit into the United States at that time, or the colonies, well, because of the same religious yeah. beliefs. That's very that, interesting. And Brunswick, New Brunswick is Dutch Reformed. So right. they were all Calvinists together. Right. right. They were all Calvinists together. That's a really good point. So it, it was a, it was really pretty good garrison duty. I think the, uh, what comes out in the journal and diary of William Hunter is that they were shocked when the war broke out. That was just shocking to them. And it was abrupt. It came out of the blue and it just changed their life dramatically. 1775, where is where are the hunters and the 26th, his or his company of the 26th? Right. Because I imagine they're being distributed around in penny packets. The, yes. There's only 100, 150 people can fit in that barracks in New Brunswick, That's, right? Yeah. So he's in Montreal. He moves to Montreal. Okay, so he's in, they've it, gone from New Brunswick to New York to, Montreal, to Montreal by yes. the time that he's, what, seven? Yeah, seven. Yeah. yeah. And he was definitely a precocious kid. Like, he grew up fast. You have to grow up fast in this environment. But his father was stationed in Montreal, which actually turned out to be, at the, you, looking back, turned out to be very good. He wasn't at Ticonderoga because some of the element of the 26th Regiment Foot was captured by Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold at Ticonderoga. They were sent when the hostilities commenced. After Lexington and Concord, the British commander sent William Hunter's father to Fort St. John or Fort St. Jean in French, which is on the border of Canada and New York State. And down there to forward deploy to defend the Quebec province from the invading Americans. So he, he was at that fort. William and his mother stayed in Montreal. So they didn't go with him to that fort, though there were there were some other families that were in that fort, but not William and his mother. General, General Richard Montgomery came and laid siege with a huge American force, an overwhelmingly large American force to, to Fort St. John. They had a bombardment of the fort with 24-pound cannon. And those during that one of those bombardments, William's father was egregiously wounded. There was a powder keg or something that he describes as a powder keg, whether that's exactly right or not, I don't know, but exploded and just burned his father egregiously. And so put his father pretty much out of action. And then when the fort was surrendered, the most of the people in the 26th Regiment of Foot went into captivity. They originally were to send them to Connecticut, but then they end, ended up revectoring them to a POW camp in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. But what happened was, Al, that William's father couldn't move. They moved him nine miles to Fort Chambly, which was a masonry fort, much better place to spend the Canadian winter in than the, the ruins of Fort St. John. And Fort St. John was a wood fort, <laughs> a wood barricade. So that would be a much better place to be. And his father spent the winter recovering there. And the diary talks about some stories about the British soldiers. It's what's interesting when you said, what's it like there? They had a lot of respect for the former British captain, Richard Montgomery. When they learned that he died in the assault in Quebec, that put a pall over the British soldiers. We think about you got two sides, but these were real people that knew other people 
in this in event. And so it's not as divided as you might yeah. think. It's always amazing to see the British Army is a small place, place, a small organization in the 18th century. Everyone knows each other. So sergeants, privates like William Hunter's father, right. they know, they either know or know of even a captain right. in another That's regiment. Right. Yeah. And they lamented his loss. And so it wasn't as, you know, it, later on the war, obviously things change a bit, but not er, as early in the war. So William's father does recover. And late spring, they send him down to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, with some other captives. And so he leaves Canada and they go up, uh, take a sleigh up Lake Champlain. And it's really interesting, the sleigh ride, because it was start, spring was starting. So there was some open ice. And so they would lay planks across the openings to drive the sleighs across these openings in the ice. And sometimes the horses fell in. And so they talk about having to cut the reins and fish the horses out. And sometimes it wouldn't work. And so it was a harrowing journey for him, a young boy to go with his family. So he is accompanies his father into captivity. But then eventually, John Andre, is he the 26th or a different regiment? Yes. They're all in captivity in, in, in Lancaster. Yep. What they all are exchanged eventually, or and how does he how does he rejoin the British Army briskly up until they let's canter through the rest of the his time okay. in America? Yeah. Okay. So he he basically spent seven months in Lancaster, and the Americans were several hundred Americans were captured in Canada, and those were exchanged for the British 26th Regiment foot that were in Lancaster. So they went back to New York. And they almost went immediately in contact and combat. You think about today, you return from captivity, they at least give you some leave. <laughs> but William and his father, he immediately went on these, something was called the foraging wars in New Jersey. He immediately went on combat patrols and foraging expeditions throughout throughout the New Jersey. And then he, he ends up going on a major mission to capture Fort Montgomery and Fort Clinton. And that's probably his father's most horrific combat experience. The His father was in the unit that assaulted Fort Clinton, which was basically, you had to run about 300 yards across level open ground against an entrenched enemy that had cannons and artillery and muskets firing against you. That's But they overwhelmed that group. That's what took the most casualties. And so they were successful at that. Wim has a passage in his journal, which is, Almost, it's so heart wrenching to to read. It, it basically, as a young boy, he watched the wagons of dead and wounded came in because those people preceded the actual soldiers. That's the way they did it. Came back into New York City where they were living, and so he went wagon to wagon searching for his father. And when he got to the last wagon and didn't see his father, just the relief that you can read about, it's just palpable, his relief of not finding his father in, in, among the dead and the wounded. Uh, so and it so was th- pretty horrific. We're up to, this is late 1777. That's Fort Montgomery yes. and Clinton are part of the part of the, on the Saratoga campaign. Yes. British, Henry Clinton's attempt to force his way up the Hudson right. to relieve Burgoyne. Um, does... 
are the hunters then? Do they? Does the twenty six then travel to Philadelphia with Hal? Yes, or they do. Yes, they do. Yes, as they do. Reinf- yeah, there's reinforcements. They don't go on the first wave. They go in, and they're in the Philadelphia Bay the, on the Del- in the Delaware River as they are reducing the forts, Fort Mercer and the Red Bank, Fort Red Bank and Mifflin. Yes, Mifflin. Yes, and uh, William actually watches one of the British ships run aground and get destroyed by the the Americans. So he saw a lot of combat as a kid. He's and nine then, years yeah, old by this time. <laughs> yes, he's nine years old, and he's seen a lot of combat. And the idea that you know that you know that the British were snug and warm in Philadelphia, while the Americans were starving and freezing in out at Valley Forge, that's just not true. I mean, the, the Americans may have been starving and freezing, but the British were also the same doing things. William talks about the lack of provisions that they had, the lack of food, and they were watching the water for ships to come in. That would carry food and forage for them because they were not, it was not a, they weren't fat and dumb and happy there. They were, it was a very tough duty. It was, they really got stressed during that winter. It was not easy times. So he's Sergeant Hunter by now, William's father. And in 1778, he's basically, he's not invalided out of the army, but he is no. he is detached on light duties to recruit in England. And so William returns to his native country, which is right. not his native country. It's a country he's never seen before. <laughs> and so describe what's his reaction to that when he finally gets to England or to Scotland or wherever well, he regards you know, his new home. I think there's a lot of relief because on the way back, he spent a year in a prisoner war camp in, in, in France. So he was captured again and saw another a horrific event of an officer on the deck where he was got his leg shot off by cannons. So it's, he was, I think relief is the right word, that he was glad to be there where it was peaceful and that his father was safe and he was safe. They actually first go to London. I would have, you could just see his eyes pop out at going to, I mean, London was like 10 times or 20 times the size of New York City and Philadelphia, the two largest in the United States. And so his father reported to the colonel of the regiment. William spent a month in London. And then he traveled on, as his father traveled for recruiting, he lived in maybe five or six different areas in the West Midlands, went up to Scotland, traveled with his father to the historic home of the 26th Regiment, which is Musselburgh in Scotland. And so he got a bit of an education there. And so that was good. That's the other surprising thing. Most people think of the British Army as a bunch of illiterate people. That is the farthest from the truth. They highly valued education. And his father and and mother really worked hard to educate William and give him the best education that they could. So I think he had a good time there. That good time would end, though, because he's becoming of age. As you get to be an early teenager, it's time to earn a living. <laughs> but that's In those times, you can't, your family needs yourself to earn a living. And so he was apprenticed to, to a printer, which meant the family had a bit of wealth. Because back then, you just didn't say, geez, I'd like to be your apprentice. They, it cost money. So his father and mother had to spend, had to spend money to do that. And I think his father earned that extra money because he got bounties for recruits. And I think getting those bounties for recruits, though I did pass over one thing that's funny about the journal is that when it became time for William to earn a living, his father wanted him to go into the military. 
And his mother said, no way, <laughs> no way, no possible way of doing that. And William, and as, a, as an adult, William goes, oh, I am so glad that didn't happen because I did not want to be in the military. You know? yep. And so his mother prevailed and he became an apprentice to a printer. So he learned how to be a compositor, which is the person that puts the typeset on the racks for the printing. And then he knew how to run the printing press. And he learned a little about the business aspects of it, how much it costs and how much he did the books for the printer, kept the books. Well, so he, We can see that he has a very adequate education to be a printer's apprentice. You right. obviously have to be literate, but not just right. literate. You actually have to know how to, Ben Franklin could famously compose an essay back, you know, after, backwards, backwards yeah. right, in right. type. Not all printers do that, but a lot of them can. Right. And being a printer is like the best possible working class education in the 18th mm -hmm. century. There is none better. It's like a postgraduate degree. I think that's right. And he took advantage of that. The person he was apprenticed to was friends of Dr. Erasmus and Darwin, which, you know, associated with Charles Darwin. And with, so the lunar, got, with Lunar Society, I'll lunar, to that conversation yeah. about William Small. We've had about one of the founders of the Lunar Society and Erasmus Darwin's friend. Yes. And in fact, uh, Joseph Priestley, now uh, this is skipping ahead maybe a year or two, but uh, William Hunter attended lectures by Joseph Priestley, part so, of the Lunar Society. So we're beginning to see here that some important reasons in those 15 years between his departure at age 10 and his return at age 25, how William Hunter becomes a Republican and why he returns to America. He's hanging yes. out in the Midlands near Erasmus Darwin, listening to lectures from Joseph Priestley, dangerous radical. This is all very interesting. And he's a printer and they tend to be on the radical side of 18th century politics. Yes, especially the ones outside of London. Because And it was a, he was outside of London. He was in the Birmingham area. And he attended Priestley's lectures. But when Priestley was attacked, his home was attacked. He was, it was, his laboratory was burned. His books were destroyed. And he, when he had to flee to London, that set off an alarm bells in William's mind. He says, I really don't know if I can live here. I want to go, I want to, go to a place where I can exercise my free speech. And so that's really why he went to the United States. He had no money. He had enough money for passage. He went on one of the cheapest ships he could find. And it's interesting. He got out of Britain just in time before the Napoleonic blockade of Britain. So he got out just in time and was on the right kind of ship because he went on an American ship and it was able to, it wasn't seizable at that time by the French he could have, if he was on a British ship, he could have been seized again. He was very fortunate to get out of, of England when he did. That was the plus side. On the other hand, as I said in the intro, he arrives during the Great Yellow Fever epidemic of 1793. Yes. It is very funny and very poignant to think of him returning up the Delaware Bay yes. and Delaware River, where he had traveled before at the age of nine yes. in the midst of combat, but with another war, a long, violent war about to begin. Yeah, uh, and I think that it also is, is coming back up that second time in 1793. He thinks, boy, the last time I came up here, I came with my father and my mother. My father has passed. I, my mother has moved to Portugal. I don't know my mother or sister anymore. I'm alone in this world. Why did he, why, by the way, why did his mother move to Portugal? Do we know? We don't actually really know, no, but we do know that his father received a pension from the from the back then if you are a good soldier and you do things well you can get a pension and he earned a pension and but when his father died the pension stopped it's not like pensions today where they continue so i believe his mother was destitute 
she had no earnings and no way to earn any money. So I believe she went to, to live with relatives in Portugal. And uh, William later on in his life inquires about her and does not get any answers, at least any answers that survived the, the historical record. So she disappears there, but I think it was to, was to survive. You had to go live with a, res uh, a, a woman without a husband. You had to go find some place to live. Mm -hmm. That's just the way it was. But he did go, he did come back. Very fortunate. They actually stayed off the Delaware Bay a bit to, to make sure that the yellow fever epidemic had run its complete course. But uh, he did say he, he found lodging, cheap lodging. The reason it was cheap was because it was really close to ground zero. <laughs> so anyway, he did that and he looked around for a job. And but he's got a trade. He's got a trade. That was really good. That's, it's really ironic, the job he found, though. It's not ironic that it was in as a working as a printer. It was ironic. It, he was, his first job was working for Andrew Brown. And Andrew Brown was the publisher of the Philadelphia Gazette. And Andrew Brown was, before the American Revolution, he was a soldier in the 46th Regiment of Foot, an officer in the 46th Regiment of Foot. Just before Lexington and Concord, he deserts to the American cause. And he fights against the British at Lexington and Bunker Hill. After that, he maintains a bunch of different positions in the Continental Army throughout the war. And he starts a newspaper. So imagine... You're a young man coming to America looking for a place to work, and you're going to look for a place to work for a guy that fought against you that decided to leave the, the British Army. So anyway, he ended up working for Andrew Brown for, I don't really know exactly how long it was, but it was less than a year. Andrew Brown was not noted as a very good employer. He had one, and through his whole time, he only had one apprentice that finished his apprenticeship. Everybody else left. <laughs> so what does William do then? That's it. Yeah, he's an entrepreneur. He wants to, uh, he starts, he starts his own business, boards with a, a Spanish language teacher. So he and another fellow named John Colrick get the idea of publishing a Spanish language grammar book to help people learn Spanish, the Spanish language. And so they published that book. That was their first book that they published in Philadelphia together. By the way, you can buy that. I've seen copies at, at rare book stores of this book. So you can buy it today if you'd like, but you'd better bring your whole wallet and then some. So it's many hundreds of dollars for this uh, book. So he would be shocked to see how much is. I think it sold, sold for less than a pound back then. You'd be shocked to see how much people pay for that book today. So anyway, they did that and they ran this book for business for a while, but they, but Philadelphia, it was, the printing business was highly competitive. There were a lot of printers, People really successful like Matthew Carey, but they weren't, they actually, William made friends with Matthew Carey, but he couldn't compete. Carey had a first mover advantage and a much more better reputation. So they decided they needed to move out of Philadelphia to find better places to start businesses. William Hunter and John Colrick moved to Washington, Pennsylvania, which is just south of, south and west of Pittsburgh on the other side of the Alleghenies. And they start the first newspaper, or second newspaper in Pennsylvania, west of the Alleghenies. It's called the West Washington Western Telegraph and Washington Advertiser. And uh, it's an so interesting newspaper. What can we discern about his political opinions? Is he now advocating a sort of so Priestley-esque Unitarian radicalism? Is that sort of his editorial standpoint from an he, earliest he, period? 
Yes, I, with one exception, he was not really religious. So this is that's he was really not. There's no evidence of him anywhere in the historical record of him attending church, being a member of a church, espousing religious views. Mm-hmm. So he's not. That's the only difference. But the radical republicanism is definitely the case. Mm-hmm. And the partnership with John Colrick was a way to balance that. If you had one news, these small towns could afford one newspaper. So you had a one partner that was a federalist, John Colrick, and one partner that was a Jeffersonian Democrat, and that was a hunter. And so they could publish editorials every other week, and it would work. Very handy. For a and, while. Yeah, I mean, that because I'm thinking, as you're describing William Hunter, my guy, Daniel Morgan, this is exactly the kind of fellow... Here he is, Washington, Pennsylvania, which is pretty close right. to the epicenter yeah. of the Whiskey Rebellion. Yes, um, it was. Very much so. Very much. And this is just the kind of crap that we expect from a fellow like this atheist, yes. franco philly right. Englishman, son yeah, Englishman. of a British soldier. It's like the worst of all possible combinations if you're a, if a Federalist veteran of the American Revolution. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I think he downplayed that and probably hid that as much as he could, he could do that. He, we actually have evidence that we know that uh, Thomas Jefferson sub- subscribed to his paper. And it's the funny thing about it. Jefferson, we all know, borrowed a lot of money and lived off borrowed money. So his paper sold for $2 if you paid for it in cash, Two fifty dollars he paid for it on credit. So Jefferson got it two fifty dollars on credit. <laughs> so that was fun. Um, That's interesting. It indicates how politics works at a high level. In America, that Thomas Jefferson in Philadelphia or in Monticello is subscribing to a paper from Washington, Pennsylvania, just the way that Washington himself did, would get an enormous armful of newspapers to scan through, look at the local news, to keep your fingertips on the pulses of communities spread across the 15 states. Yes, very much. And they were very much into distant readers. One of the things that also helped was that the U.S. government subsidized newspapers by giving free mailing to newspapers. So you could send, I could send a copy of my newspaper to the editor of a New York newspaper for free. Mm -hmm. And so they did that and also got my articles republished. And then William Hunter would republish newspapers. And so he... He would. He actually famously republished a editorial from the New York newspaper. It was the first time out in that area that was anti-slavery and advocated for to educate former slaves. That was like it was one thing to be an abolitionist. It was another thing you said you're going to educate. That was even more radical for that community. And yet, this guy who republishes this editorial moves further west and into a state where I mean, Pennsylvania, that region of Pennsylvania was very heavily called Virginia-fied right. because of early settlement patterns. There's a relatively large amount of slavery in that section. Yes. Then he moves to Kentucky. Yes. And he moves to Kentucky. And I think it's really, at some point in time, they realized that as the community got bigger and more sophisticated that you couldn't have a paper that was both Federalist and Anti-Federalist. You needed to take sides. So William Hunter packed up. He moved with a partner, William Beaumont. They moved to Washington, Kentucky. No one knows what that really is today. I don't want to denigrate anybody in in Kentucky, but it's not a very big city today. In fact, it's really a historical city. It's uh, Mayville is the, the biggest city there. It's a 
like a, a small historical city, but they moved there because it was the post office that served the Northwest Territory. Oh. And so if you had the post office, I got first mover advantage to get the news either going west or going east. Uh, so that's why they moved there. Then they realized that the political capital was going to be Frankfort, Kentucky. And back then, if you were a, a newspaper publisher, being at the center of the politics is the place to be and at the capital, really for two reasons. One is that political news sold, and so you could sell more newspapers. And two, he could compete for the state printing contract, which was very lucrative. Back then, the states and federal government issued contracts to print bills and legislation and court decisions and things like that. Currency. Current, yeah, that was all good stuff to do. And that provided steady income. So actually competed for that and won that contract. So he served 10 years as the state printer for Kentucky. Briefly, describe the, his run-in with the Alien and Sedition Acts. Oh, that's interesting. So anyway, he, he comes to the United States for free speech, but right afterwards, they pass the Alien Sedition Acts, which restricts free speech. So what he does is he writes the first editorial opposing the Alien Sedition Acts, basically within two weeks of learning of it, which was pretty courageous, very courageous. He could have been put in jail, lost his, his, all of his businesses, all of his money. And the district attorney for Kentucky and Pennsylvania recommended to the Adams administration that they prosecute him for, for a sedition. And, but when it got to Timothy Pickering, who was the secretary of state in charge of prosecutions, and John Adams, they basically said, no, we're not going to prosecute him because we don't think a jury in Kentucky will vote to make him guilty and they'll make him. And so they found people like Matthew Lyons and more reliable Federalist territory to prosecute, not William Hunter. So he escaped that. But the fact that he did that accrued to his credit throughout his whole life. People remember that about him. If you ask somebody that knew William Hunter about what they would say is the first thing that came to their mind was he opposed courageously the Alien Sedition Act. So is he is he a success as a entrepreneur, as a businessman? Is he a success? What I'm really wondering is, as I said to you before we began recording, reading the book, it's very interesting to me, the similarities and the some of the enormous differences between him and Daniel Morgan, my sort of biographical subject, because they're both common people, quote unquote, who really are both looking to make it. Both of them, Morgan's ambition is an engine that knew no rest, much like Abraham Lincoln's, thinking of another poor boy who wanted to rise up in society. Um, And it seems like William Hunter also has a tremendous ambition to rise up in Kentucky society. Mm -hmm. And it would certainly seem, the way you talk about where he's buried, how he's buried, that he achieves a certain place within the Kentuckiness of Kentuckiness of in Kentuckianity or whatever you yes. would call it. Is that seen during his lifetime at this time? Yes. He becomes a trustee of the town, which is doing the leaders of the town government. So he served there for over a decade in that position. He served on a commission to build the first capital in Frankfurt. He, he built the first female summit place for education. So they called it a seminary. It wasn't a seminary in our kind of terms, but that's what they called it. He also invested in a college and built, helped to build a college. So he was a real community builder person. He, because of the newspapers, he got to know all the politicians. Henry Clay 
in him differed politically. But when James Madison asked which newspapers I subscribe to in, in Kentucky, Henry Clay recommended William Hunter's paper. So he was, he was with some of the pretty well-known Kentuckians, but uh, I don't think he was quite at that, uh, the, like the Henry Clay stature, but he is in that community. He was well-regarded. His integrity was very well-regarded. But Henry Clay is, to put it bluntly, is parlaying lawyers' fees into land and slaves. And William Hunter, and is very successful at that, William Hunter is not parlaying his successful newspaper into land. He's not becoming a Kentucky no. manager. He was never a, he was never a he was never really a landowner. He owned several businesses. I do believe he either owned or leased slaves. So he did do that. And it's so typical of the period. You'd have people write anti-slavery editorials and you'd own enslaved people. Yeah. It, it just was. Now, how he changed over his life is he did change, I think, some of his views on that over time. But he was he was someone that politicians looked to to have support. He went for both local, state, and national campaigns. He was on the campaign circuit all the time. Mm-hmm. And so when people would go out, senators and members of Congress would come out to give speeches, they always gave some time for William Hunter to participate. So he was very well known as a advocate of, of Jackson. Jacksonian politics. He was a person for widening the vote, the kind of the creating a broad franchise of males. I'm not telling you he was for female voters back then, but he was for widening the male voters. And he rode the coattails of Andrew Jackson's rise in politics. And he was a, a strong supporter. In fact, he started a newspaper just to help Andrew Jackson get elected. In Kentucky. Can you imagine? In Kentucky. In, yeah, in Louisville. Mm-hmm. And because... They looked around the state and said, geez, where do we need votes? <laughs> where do we think Andrew Jackson is not, doesn't have good support? They, found, they, they landed upon Louisville, so he started a newspaper in Louisville, and the Louisville Gazette. And it started about eight months before the election, and it closed up two weeks before the election. The reason why you close up two weeks before the election is because you can say anything in the last two weeks, and no one can verify it. So after that, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so it closed up, and the paper was very successful. And Andrew Jackson was elected president, and we'll, maybe we'll get to that a bit here about how that influences him. But he was a very effective at, at retail, what we call today retail politics. And did he... And- did he serve in the Kentucky? He served in the Kentucky yes. legislature. Did yes, he, he never, did serve. Never in the federal Congress or no. never sought no. higher office in federal office. No, he didn't. I Kentucky had a, some really strong politicians back then. There's a lot of people that came out of Kentucky was a hotbed of, of citizen involvement, much more so than other places in the country. And it was a growth area too. It was like our, it was the wild west back then. It's also uh, bourbon is an extremely valuable commodity. And so uh, at the time are horses and mules. Yeah. And there's, I forget the, what percentage of mules the Union Army got from Kentucky, but it was quite an extraordinary percentage. So this is where you get your transportation from in That's Kentucky. Right. This is where if your keel boats aren't being built in Ohio to go down the Mississippi, they're being built in Kentucky. So this that's is a right. major transportation nexus. Yes, it is. And that's what was good for the newspaper business and good for politics. And uh, and William did both. He involved his, some of his businesses operated on the and Ohio rivers. He had business operations in Nashville, for example. So that's how I think some of this was done around uh, Andrew Jackson. Jackson, obviously, is from but, Tennessee. But as I said, because of that 
radicalism he had picked up in Birmingham. He is his, I'm sure that he was for universal franchise long yes. before just about anybody in the United States was. Yes. I'm sure he came over with that in his head. So yeah. he is a Jacksonian in that way. He is a Jacksonian before Jackson. Yes, I think that's a great observation. I don't believe he changed his fundamental views since he came over. I think yeah. he was always for democracy. He might have gotten more government. pro-slavery. Yeah. I, or at least been less, may have been more of an abolitionist. This is a, it's a common trajectory. It's just the way things are. It's a, it's it a common trajectory from the 1790s to 1830s for people. Yeah, it, I think you're right. And you, if you live in that society, I don't want to make any excuses for anybody. I think he was conflicted. I believe that there are times in his life where he's very, he's an active user of enslaved people. Mm-hmm. And there's other times in his life where he, doesn't employ slaves. Right. But it's, it was, it was, it, he was highly conflicted on that issue. Cer- yeah. Certainly it's, you see the same thing with Madison where they, they have a reticence because of their early formation that someone like Calhoun, who's of a, the next generation, if he has reticence, he quickly loses it. Yeah, or, I, some, or someone like famously Alexander Stevens in his cornerstone speech, who says, it took us a while. Those of you who in the audience who are old enough will remember how we used to feel about this, but now we know that Mr. Jefferson was wrong. That's right. They've gone yeah. through a, they've gone through some sort of mental, right. s- spiritual transformation on the issue of slavery. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he always knew it was wrong. Mm-hmm. And it, from the day one, he knew it was wrong. I think it sometimes he just felt like he had to do that. Yeah. I think that it's hard for us in our society to put ourselves in the shoes of these people sometimes. If you're a owner of a hemp factory, hemp business, and you don't employ slaves, you're probably going to go out of business right away. You cannot make it you cannot make it work. And so what do you do? I I do know that when William Hunter had a choice of a enslaved housekeeper in Washington DC, and a, an Irish immigrant, he chose the Irish immigrant. So you, we do know that. Yeah. yeah. It is, people cannot, it takes some mental effort and it's, and it is, it's yucky, but you have to imagine the profound financial benefits of having labor that is also capital. That's right. And when you put that together like that, when you think of that owning houses that build other houses themselves or cars that breed that you've gotten into the mentality of chattel slavery and the financial rewards are immense when you look at it from that perspective. Yeah, exactly. And his hemp factory, you needed enslaved labor for about two and a half months of the year. Mm -hmm. So when the enslaved workers worked in the fields to harvest the hemp, then it would go into a rope walk to make rope or to a weaving factory to weave it, to make sails or cotton bagging. You only did that for several months of the year. Yeah. We'll link to my friend John Zaborny's book on slave hiring in Virginia, but it's it's one of the ways in which slavery was so adaptable in, yes. up right until the moment it was ended. It, it can it has many guises. So he moves to Washington City, as you call it in the book, yes. anachronistically, That's- but I find that delightful. It's Washington City. What's he do there? It shows that his financial status wasn't right. all that he had wished in Kentucky. No. There, there's nothing to hold him there financially. There's, not, there's nothing to hold him there financially. And there's something, um, there's a security from government service that you find mm-hmm. with office seekers coming to Washington City. That's right. Time. Because he started that newspaper to help Jackson, Andrew Jackson famously had the spoil system, right? And he brought over 75 editors and newspaper owners to D.C. to work for him and to take over positions. And, you know, Jackson was one of the first person to really kick out 
the Federalists from their offices, the Federalists that were appointed by Federalist people before they were just rolled over. But he came into the, as an auditor in the Treasury Department, and he quickly got the attention of Andrew Jackson because Andrew wanted to root out, um, President Jackson wanted to root out fraud and corruption. And William found some fraud and corruption. Navy captains, he was in charge of auditing the Navy, and the Navy captains would buy wood, a quart of wood for a dollar and sell it to the Navy for a dollar thirty. And so good business when you can get it, right? So anyway, and uh, they found some, that and some other things. And the former auditor that he, that he replaced, they found malfeasance there. And they actually was the first, one of the first people to get prosecuted for malfeasance in government. Hmm. And they prosecuted him, put him in jail. So he ended up working as an auditor in the Navy Department from about 1829 to 1854. So a long time, served seven more presidents, as you point out on your intro. He started with a salary of $1,200, which wasn't bad, but it wasn't going to get you rich. Never got a, a salary increase. He never got a salary increase. During his last two years, in fact, he got a salary reduction of, of $200. Oh, those were the days. For the, Ameri- the perfect, perspective of the American taxpayer, you get what you pay for, but on the other hand, that's the, that there certainly was no federal employee union at the time. Yeah. I think we can- he he did serve well in the in Congress. He remained politically active through the through the second term of Andrew Jackson. After that, he ended his political activism. He, he wanted he didn't he wanted to keep his job. <laughs> he wanted to keep his job, and but I think I think also the Whigs. He wasn't a Whig, and he just wasn't. I think that part of it. I also think family affairs brought more weight to him. He lost a daughter. First off, he lost two children very early in their marriage that never got past infancy. And then he lost a daughter. Then he lost a son. And and his remaining daughter had a lot of issues. She, she, her husband, first husband passed and she got married to actually someone that was a friend of Williams, Henry Jackson. And so I think there are a lot of family issues he worried about. I think he got to a stage where that was just, you know, he could work and do his family issues and that was it. It's interesting how much I, I, with Daniel Morgan too, it was always interesting. That's what's, because those are the records that are left, but I don't think so. I think that family issues preoccupy a great deal of time, especially when name and honor are bound together, as well as the financial stability of the generation that will come after you and what they're going to do with their property. And if they married a drunk and you didn't realize that at the time or these sorts of things, there's no welfare system. How are you going to take care of your daughters? How are you going to take care of your son? If he's got issues, this takes up a lot of, this takes a lot of headspace. His daughter ends up with that second husband going bankrupt. William Hunter has to be the trustee to sell their goods, the remaining goods for bankruptcy court. I'll tell you one thing that we say that he hasn't been financially successful, but the family today would love to have the property that William owned in Washington, D.C. Where was, William, where was it? it was the corner of 12th Street Northwest and New York Avenue, the northeast, the southeast corner of that street. I looked up on the D.C. tax rolls. It's worth over $100 million today. When William's wife passed, it was valued at 30000 As a financial advisor once told me, the secret of real estate is to buy where more people are moving in than moving out, which in yeah. D.C.'s history has not been that long a period. And he moved there because that was the cheaper section because it was over five blocks from the White House. 
in the Treasury building. So it was pretty good. So he, he did all right. I do believe that one thing we haven't touched on and may, maybe mentioned is that uh, I believe he had a very good marriage. We have to and talk I about believe, that. Yeah. yeah, I believe his wife's Anne. I think she contributed a lot to his businesses, a lot to the newspapers. It's not a lot of that. And it's only faint in the historical record. But actually, there's some editorials during some of the campaigns that, that purports that she's a lot smarter than he is. There's hints about her contributions out there. And so I actually think they had a very good marriage. I think she was, in every sense of the word, a partner. When did they marry? They married in 1799. Yeah, she she lives, she outlives them by 10 years, 1864. Mm -hmm. And there's a great story about her. She actually goes south from D.C. through the Confederate lines during the Civil War to take care of a grandson who either was killed or injured, I'm not sure which, and comes back north through Virginia into D.C. The Union forces stop her. And ask and they don't recognize her past, so they take that up all the way up to the Secretary of War Edward Stanton, and then he takes it to Lincoln. And there's a, a entry in Lincoln's records that says, "Here's a pass for Ann Hunter. The old one can pass, but not the young one." <laughs> you could can't you imagine Lincoln saying that? That's just quintessential Lincoln. Anyway, so it's she got some notoriety out of that. You have a nice section about why William Hunter's life is relevant even today. So what have you learned from William Hunter? I think it's a wonderful, and I appreciate this question, because I think this is what matters about writing a biography of somebody. What what makes him relevant to the reader? And to me, he's a great example of an immigrant. He came to the United States to seek out economic and, and political freedom. He wanted to be a Republican, form of government. I think a lot of people come to the United States for that today. He also added a lot of intellectual capital and, and economic activity to build communities. So he was a community builder and he built businesses. I think that's, what, to me, that's a, just a great example of an immigrant contributing to our country. It's also, he's a great example of the media, or the media business today. It's partisan and it was even just as partisan back then. You can see the partisanship today. It's also risky. How many newspapers have gone out of business in the in the last five, 10 years? That's what happened to the newspapers in the 1800s too. And it's also hard to earn long-term profits in the media business. There's only a few media companies that are able to do that. I think his stand against the Alien Sedition Act reminds us that democracy is fragile and we have to invest in it and we have to take stands. Sometimes it could be pretty tough stands to take, but I think that reminds us of the need to stand up here and have the courage of our convictions. So I think it's a wonderful example about that. You mentioned about the government officials. I do think he's a good example of government officials today. Many of them quietly go back, go about their responsibilities. They ensure fairness and equity and effectiveness of our government spending. I think that's something that, you know, I did a lot of consulting work one time with government. You know, there's a lot of things you can say about government, but there's a lot of good people that work in government. And I got a lot of respect for what William Hunter did and what others do there. But lastly, I think William's life story is an example of embracing adventure. He lived in, visited five country capitals. He lived in three three countries, crossed the Atlantic several times. He witnessed a warfare. That's a lot of adventure in, in one life. He overcame a lot of challenges. And he also figured out how to take prudent risks. So I think it's a great example for us all. 
My guest today has been Gene Procknow. He's the author of William Hunter Finding Free Speech, a British soldier's son who became an early American. Gene, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Al. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 